This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. You know how the saying starts, quote, when the pressure is on, and you kind of have to fill in the blank from there. In this episode of Nordic Nation, we discuss the recent December 30th USA Nordic Sports Olympic Trials with U.S. Nordic combined skier Brian Fletcher. After the jumping portion of the Olympic Trials, things weren't so certain for the trials winner Fletcher. He began the ski nearly a minute and a half behind the first starter, Ben Loomis. We connected with Fletcher from his home in Heber, Utah on January 3rd as he reflected on sealing the Olympic deal. Okay, so you are, as of December 30th, the first and only so far uh, U.S. Nordic combined athlete to qualify uh, for Pyeongchang. And can you describe a little bit about how USA Nordic organizes Olympic trials and um, how that, from a organizational standpoint, kind of plays out? Well, I guess the first thing is Olympic trials is something that we've done uh, for a few years, and, and we're one of the few sports that has an all-out uh, Olympic trials like that where, um, you know, the best person wins and they're guaranteed a spot on the Olympic team. And there's there's not many sports out there that can do that or are willing to take the chance. And certainly for us, it's really nerve-wracking because, you know, it is one day. And obviously, uh, you know, we want the best guys that are already going to the Olympics wins. But you know, to win, but obviously anything can happen. And certainly an event that dreams are kind of found upon, you know, I remember in 2002, when I first learned of Olympic trials, and back then it was called Gold Cup. And I learned that you could, you know, win $10,000 in a spot on the Olympic team, I was like, you got to be kidding me, I'm going, I I can win, if I can win any comp, you know, that was the one I wanted to win. And, um, it, it, so it kind of like started that dream, like I'm going to win that event and I'm going to go to the Olympics. And uh, so I think that it's a, it's a pretty cool event. And, you know, for us kind of going into, um, you know, all these seasons and being that obviously our sports are so primarily European based, it's really cool to have a high level event like that where all of the qualified competitors that could potentially be going to the Olympics are going to be at. Not you know, so much for us as competitors, but for the fans and for the communities that support us, because, you know, they, they put so much effort in supporting us and, and, you know, donating to the teams and just really fostering the growth in order to combine, even from the development standpoint and, and that kind of stuff. And so to be able to have an event where they can come out and see, you know, their support, making a difference and really put on a show for them is, is pretty fun. And so to do it for, you know, the home soil crowd is, is really cool. So, you know, cause as you mentioned, it's a much different qualifying process for say the U S cross country team, contrasting that with like the summer Olympics and track and field. It is, it's just like you guys have, it's a run, one and done. It's top three, uh, finishers, I believe in every event are guaranteed spots and hopefully no one fact checks me on that, but um, I, I'm pretty sure it's the top three in every, it, it, most disciplines uh, go. You know, going into December 30th, like the night before, mentally, like what are you running through in your in your mind? Well, for this particular event, I was really nervous. You know, every other Olympic trials and, and even in World Cups, you know, I'm kind of the underdog and, 
you know, not the favorite to win the event. And um, this time, of course, I was like the favorite going in by and far. And, and a lot of people were looking at me to have a really strong performance. So I was I was pretty nervous going into it. More nervous, I would say, for the Olympic trials than I was for most World Cups I compete in. Um, I don't know why or for what reason, but, you know, and obviously in hindsight, it, I kind of realized that it was a little bit silly for me to be so nervous that I should have just relaxed a little bit. But I think it, it contributes to the fact that, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been building a, a you know, a young team up and now their level is starting to get to the point where they're becoming really strong and, and the whole level and the team is growing um, tremendously and guys like Ben Loomis and Adam and you know even some of the younger guys like Jasper Good, Ben Barron, Stephen Schumann are all skiing at great levels and then of course you have Taylor who's uh, always a threat on the cross-country course so it wasn't a guaranteed win and that's why I was so nervous kind of going into it but you know and it's it's kind of interesting too because you mentioned the qualifying thing and um, you know we do not base like our entire qualification off of the Olympic trials so even if I didn't win the event, I would have still been able to qualify for the Olympics and, you know, am the top qualified guy going into this event. But uh, it was pretty funny, you know, going into it and the nerves and just really that all out event, that feeling of like, I need to win tomorrow. I want to win tomorrow, you know, is is pretty powerful. OK, so let's kind of fast forward to the the. Sounds like the jumping and cross country uh, portions of the Olympic trials were held right down in Park City, mm-hmm. and it all just kind of paint that scene. It sounds to me from uh, what I've heard that it was a pretty good turnout. Yeah, it was a great turnout. I would have guessed there was probably close to you know four to five thousand people um, both days that came out for the event. So it was it was really cool. Oh, cool. I mean, and our the Nordic Combined Day on Saturday was you know, definitely not the best weather. It was kind of a gloomy day and um, warm, almost a little bit rainy or snowy kind of. You know, that was definitely not ideal spectating conditions, and we still had a great turnout. It, it was awesome. I mean, there were so many people there. And then it was really cool um, and also really brutal from the physiological standpoint, <laughs> But we had a really hard and, and cool course right there at the Utah Olympic Park. So um, people didn't have to move. The, you know, the booths and like all the hospitality stuff was all right there. People could literally just hang out um, in the stadium um, until the race started, which was awesome for a spectators um, from a spectator standpoint. Okay, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to run through the jumping results here. Okay, so. Correct me if I'm botching this, but I'm looking at like the PDF from USA Nordic. But uh, Ben Loomis first, Adam Loomis second, Ben Barron third, uh, Jasper Good fourth, Brian Fletcher fifth, Taylor Fletcher sixth, Stephen Schumann seventh, uh, Grant Andrews eighth, uh, Jaron Schumitt ninth. So were you a little surprised to find yourself when they do the little they do the math in terms of uh, points scored? You were starting fifth out of the gate. It's a it's a pursuit format, and you were one twenty four behind first starter Ben Loomis. Um, were you kind of surprised to find yourself in that deficit after the jumping? Yeah, I was a. a I wouldn't say surprised. I knew I was going to be a ways back after the jump. I had. Um, I had been jumping 
quite well going into this event. And again, the nerves kind of came in and I think I, you know, totally kind of botched my jump there and didn't have, uh, the jump that I hoped it was a little bit quick, a little short. And so, you know, I'd only jumped like 86 and a half meters and, and I also didn't quite have great wind points there. So, you know, it was, it was not the jump I was hoping for. So it definitely wasn't surprised that I was so far back. Um, but I certainly was, disappointed because I expected more out of myself and I knew I could jump better and and it's you know kind of going into this I expected to be um you know either first or second going into the race based off of training the week before and everything so not the performance I had hoped for but uh, I knew a minute 24 was going to be a lot to make up but I also knew that I could do it so I you know I, I knew it was going to take a great race and it was also going to be kind of close, but I knew that it was possible for me to catch those guys. I'm assuming that you train a ton with this cohort of skiers and you know, everyone's strengths and you know, possible deficiencies. What makes you think, you know, prior to the race and obviously, you know, it's amazing. I, I, I've realized that like Olympic caliber athletes are like the most positive people. They have this ability to, you know, literally a few minutes after a horrible result, or something they may consider not up to their standards, they're able to kind of move past it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what went through your mind from like 1030 to one before the start? Like, okay, I got 124 to, to close. And what convinces you that that's a possibility before you actually step on the skis? Well, it's interesting. So initially there was a mistake on the live calculations that came up on the, the TV screen at the venue so I had jumped and it had put my points into Adam's points or, you know, switched R2. So it had looked like I was in second. So initially I thought I was still in second, only 56 seconds back. And then the official start list came out and I was in fifth in a minute 24 back. And I was kind of like, wait, this can't be right. And, you know, so I'd go to my coaches and I asked and I, you know, they did the double check on the math and it was right. And I was like, oh, great that's another, <laughs> another big blow. And, and quite a, you know, now all of a sudden I'm one and a half times back. So, um, I kind of was like, great, you know, maybe I just lost the Olympic trials here and was kind of coming to terms with that. But then, you know, as, as every athlete does, they're like, well, you know, only half of the competition is over. So I kind of focused up and said, okay, you got a job to do. And, you know, started thinking about ways that I could make up a minute 24 on the cross country course and specifically what sections of the course I would attack, how would I pace the course, you know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, what kind of tactics would my teammates probably be playing and how can I beat their tactics? What's a sure way to beat that tactic? And so I started thinking of those things and, and by doing so it distracted me enough that I started, you know, formulating a plan in my head as to a way that I could win the event. And, um, that was interesting. And like you said, we do train with these athletes a lot. So there was still a shred of doubt in my head. You know, there, I know for a fact that Ben Behrend has been skiing really well. And, you know, Adam can be as fast as me, if not uh, faster at times. And, um, you know, for example, in October, we did a team training camp and Ben Behrend jumped only 30 seconds ahead of me in a 5k event and held the 30 second gap you know, nearly the entire race, or maybe it was seven and a half K, which was 
you know, saying something that, okay, you know, a minute and a half is not going to be an easy deficit to make up on Ben, especially if he has a good race. And um, same with Adam, 24 seconds back. I know that he's definitely got the ability to hold off 24 seconds on me. So, you know, I kind of went into the race believing that, you know, I could make up the deficit, but it was also kind of dependent on the performance that those guys had as well. At an event like this, I think most of you guys are on the same ski brand. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Who's prepping the skis? Is it sort of universal prep? Because, you know, you guys would choose the skis and choose, you know, I guess your fastest pair, but does each person's or each skier's club prep the skis or are they prepped by USA Nordic Wax Techs? So we have... We had our uh, B-team wax tech here. We also had our Continental Cup fleet of skis. And um, without getting into too much detail, basically what we did is we took our you know fleet of skis that we had and he tested them the day before and he picked the 10 closest pairs out of all the skis. So he threw out the fastest ones, the outlying fastest ones, and the outlying slowest ones and picked the 10 closest pairs and then waxed them all exactly the same. Wow. Um, so they had the same grind, all the same wax, everything so and then we before the race we did a random draw as to what ski you're going to get so each you know we had a hat with a piece of paper in there and each person went up and drew a piece of paper out of there and that corresponded to a ski number and that's what we we raced on so it's very uh non-scientific if you will but again we didn't want anybody to come away feeling like they didn't have the equipment necessary to win the event. So we just did it all even. Um, and like I said, with our team and everything being that we're on the same brand, that's the best way to do it. Huh? That's, and are you guys all roughly within the same weight range? Yeah, pretty close. And, uh, the only difference that we had on the day was that, um, some of us race on a slightly shorter ski. So we had, um, you know, about seven pairs of, of, uh, 192 length and seven pairs of a 186 length or sorry, like four pairs of a 186 length. And so enough random, I think there's only two athletes that race on a 186 and there's the rest race on 192. So there was enough pairs, uh, to go around that it was still randomized, even if you were the last guy to go. So we do not have, I don't have splits. Mm -hmm. I just have straight up results, but you you not you you made up your deficit which was uh 124 at the start you know how did that actually play out for you and strategically you must have known maybe 5k in that you were well on your way to closing that gap yeah so i guess strategically the way it played out is i went out of uh, the start fairly hard uh, i knew that you know, the way that the Ben and Adam ski, um, Adam was going to go out a little bit faster than Ben. I also knew that Ben was going to take his time out of the start. Ben's a great sprinter. So I knew that he was probably going to try and play that card at the end. And then I knew that also Adam is a more similar skier to I am. So he'd probably go out at a pretty good clip in the beginning and try a negative split from there. So I went out and then also had Taylor behind me, uh, 30 seconds back. So I knew that I couldn't go out slow and, you know, still hold him off. So I went out fairly uh, good clip and kind of just worked my way into the race, you know, trying to be as close uh, to threshold as possible, kind of going into each lap and trying to make up as much time kind of in the first two laps as possible. 
So I was able to make up about 30 seconds on Ben each of the first two laps. And by that time, I had caught Adam and had him with me. Um, but I immediately kind of overtook him and went to the front and started pushing the pace from there. So the third lap was kind of uh, an opportunity for me to, you know, take a little bit of a deep breath, uh, but also I needed to keep pushing. So I, I kind of backed off there. And then on the fourth lap, uh, that's when I caught Ben. And he was coming in with, uh, you know, at that time I was about 10 seconds behind him. So coming uh, towards the end of the fourth lap is actually when I made contact with him. So then it was obviously two guys, two teammates and brothers that were together. So I knew that it was kind of a 2v1 situation and, uh, you know, neither of them were going to lead. Uh, so I kind of just went to the front and skied my pace and picked a point where, okay, you know, this is where I'm going to make my move and um, hope that, you know, it would work. And so I, I, I guess to kind of finish it off, so we kind of went down, there's a really technical downhill on the course that was uh, basically one, two, three, four, basically uh, three switchbacks and then comes into a very steep pitch at the bottom. And so right at the top of that steep pitch is where I decided that, okay, this is where I'm going to go and um, just went as hard as I could for as long as I could. And uh, luckily was by the end of the climb was just starting to open up a gap on those guys and uh, was able to maintain that into the finish. A little bit of a few after uh, you cross the line or like a, yeah, I'm still, you know, you are the oldest of the on the team uh and yeah you're still around and and can dominate i'm sort of just like what were those sensations like um it was a a huge relief i mean i wanted to win this event i wanted to win with my friends and family there also you know my dad was there and um my dad has uh als and um you know is going on his second year since his diagnosis and and he was there in the crowd. So, you know, I wanted to win for them. I also had like relatives in town from out of town. So, you know, it was it was a huge draw for me to win in front of the hometown crowd. And, you know, kind of going in and winning that event was just like a huge relief. You know, obviously, you know, on World Cup, I had solidified myself enough to kind of assure a spot on the Olympic team. But, you know, it was to win this and have it be guaranteed was like a huge, huge relief and, and it allowed me to just kind of take a deep breath and know that, okay, this has made my season. I can focus on training and preparation to really be at top form into the games. If, if I didn't have this, then I would be worrying about the next two weekends of World Cup and making sure that I'm qualified, you know, also making sure that, you know, I'm getting my points and my world rankings just for any anything but now having this result it, uh, it gives me a lot of freedom in order to plan for the olympics and try and be at my best uh, performance there you know i'm imagining like your parents and like the amount of resources and not just monetary resources but like energy spent on the fletcher boys getting you guys to this point i'm just kind of you know like what are those and again, they're private conversations, but I'm just kind of curious, like what might those conversations be with your parents at this point? Like, you know, you're, you're going to be, I believe a two-time Olympian and for them to watch you do that. Obviously your dad is, you know, his health has been compromised. You're in your, you know, the start of your thirties, 
And you've actually seen this dream come true, which I'm sure at some point, you know, parents are like trying to be good parents are like, yeah, it's great to have dreams, but keep it real, you know? No, I mean, it's been a, a huge, you know, investment from, you know, my parents over the years and, you know, not just from the parents, but from the community. I mean, you know, it's, it really comes down to, you know, not only the parents, but the winter sports clubs, the, the town around it, you know, you're constantly fundraising from people who, you know, within your community. And a lot of times they give very little in return for their investments uh, or seemingly, you know, obviously to us, it makes a huge difference. And obviously they see that difference and that's why they continually donate, but, you know, to our teams and, and all that stuff. But uh, it's a, it's a huge investment. And so to realize the dream and, you know, go through those periods, like, yeah, you're right. There were definitely times where they're like, yeah, dreams are great, but, you know, you got to have a fallback because not all dreams become reality, you know? I remember having that conversation with my parents when I was in high school and, and going, you know, okay, well, I'll apply to a few schools, you know, and, and, and things like that. And, you know, in the end, it's it's all worth it. And, you know, I'm lucky to be standing here today and, and be able to realize those dreams. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it's definitely a considerable investment on the parents' part, on the athletes' part, and, you know, on the community's part. But I don't think if you asked anybody in any one of those uh, situations, you know, they would absolutely say yeah, it was worth it. They would absolutely be in full support of it. And, you know, the things that athletes learn along the way, the things that their coaches learn along the way, um, the values instilled in them, in their younger counterparts, like their teammates and their siblings, and then also within the community itself, um, I would absolutely say that every single person would be like, yeah, this is worth it, and then some. If you can kind of speak a little bit about what are the prospects of the U.S. bringing four skiers to Pyeongchang, and also comment about what it looks like in terms of other skiers possibly qualifying in the next, uh, I think the qualifying periods ends off the top of my head, maybe January, January 22nd. Yeah. Yeah. January 22nd. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm fairly familiar with the qualification criteria myself being on the U S ski and snowboard board of directors. You know, it was, I reviewed the qualification criteria in the fall and we approved it at the board level and, you know, kind of going into the season, it's it's pretty clear cut and, and has everything spelled out in the event of tiebreakers and all that stuff. Um, our team uh, originally were unaware that there were they had changed the rules to allow five athletes going into the games. Um, and that was something, a, a relatively new uh, revelation that was revealed to us uh, a couple weeks ago. And so at that point, you know, we had thought we had four guys or at least close to four guys qualified. However, now we are looking at potentially only having two guys qualified for the Olympics. That said, like I said, going into the Olympic trials, I think the team is skiing on a high level and um, they just need a little bit of luck and a little bit of, you know, a good performance. And I think they are capable of scoring World Cup points. I mean, Ben and Adam both skied great races and, you know, Ben, Adam, myself, um, and a couple of other teammates all were sick with, uh, you know, colds and stuff the week before Olympic trials. So to come out and have a performance and, you know, after 
three days off or four days off of being sick is, is one thing. So I, you know, I know they're healthy now and going into uh, the CO season, clinging to all this weekend, at least Ben Loomis is and the rest of the team. And then Adam and myself and Taylor will pick back up on world cup next weekend in Val de Fiem. And uh, I, I believe in the team and I, I truly believe that they are capable of getting points on world cup. Uh, with strong jumping performances and strong cross-country performances. It won't be easy for them to qualify, but um, I think they can do it. And so I'm, I'm optimistic we can get four spots on World Cup, um, but it won't be easy. Or, sorry, four spots at the Olympics, but it won't be easy. Okay. And so right now it looks like you guys have two, two, two spots guaranteed. Yep. Yeah, we have... We have two spots guaranteed, and uh, the athletes will have um, three, two or three Continental Cup competitions in Klingenthal this weekend, and then World Cup next week in Val de Fiam. They'll have two individual competitions, and then one individual competition in Chenov the following weekend before the Olympic uh, qualification uh, closes. So um, basically, they have three opportunities on World Cup to uh, solidify points and move into the top 55 in order to open up more spots at the Olympics. So they need to be within that top 55 benchmark to be, to open up spots, I guess. And it doesn't matter which athlete, it just needs to be a U.S. athlete. Yeah. So, uh, the way the selection will work going into the Olympics is they will first, every team with five athletes qualified will get their five athletes and then they'll take all the teams with four athletes qualified and they'll get their four athletes. And then it gets a little bit tricky from there. And I'm not a hundred percent an expert on this. So uh, don't hold me to it completely. But I think what they'll do is then they'll look at the teams with three athletes qualified and they'll look down the world ranking list and they will pick their fourth guy over teams that may have um, even if their fourth guy is worse ranked than another country's guy who only has two qualified. So they'll, they'll want to fill the four, you know, teams first. So, or the four athlete teams first, so they can have a team event. They will continue to do that down the list until they have 10 nations with four athletes qualified for the game. So they will look at all the countries with three qualified and pick their fourth and then move to the countries with two qualified and then they'll look at world ranking and pick their next two best athletes. So, so for for us, it would be a huge step to have one, even one guy score World Cup points uh, there, where they could. Then we'd have three athletes qualified, you know, to go, and that would put us ahead of some of the other nations. And then, you know, obviously, ideally, if we could just get two guys to jump into that points, then uh, you know, we'd be safe. Okay. Well, thank you for the update and congratulations and, um, stay healthy and, uh, we'll connect, I'm sure for an interview at some point and hopefully in Korea. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And have a good day. You too. All right. Bye, Brian. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nations.